Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, where each week we discuss new ideas and tactics to help you succeed in business, relationships, and life. And now your host, Tim Stoddard. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Tim Stoddart. Welcome to the Tim Stodds Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. My guest today is one of my best internet friends. He's, he's one of the, the many people that I've met on my journey of online entrepreneurship and uh, one of the many people that I have built a strong relationship that I've never actually met in person. His name is Gans Sanchez. Gans and I first met I guess it was a little more than a year ago. He was one of the founders of a newsletter that I'm a big fan of called Weekly.gg. Uh, Weekly.gg is is a newsletter that gives a, a weekly update on esports and the business of esports and, and what the markets are looking like. But Gans decided to put all of his focus into what has been his biggest priority and his biggest passion project yet. And that's what we talk about in this episode. It's called Seed Table, seedtable.com. Gans gives an in-depth, very researched, highly, highly reputable and high quality weekly newsletter about what the scene in European tech is like. Uh, He coins it a weekly authentic view on European tech. I read Seed Table every single week and it was about two months ago that Gans decided to put Seed Table on a monthly paid subscription model. Uh, we, we talked a lot about this. I, I think that I think that for a lot of people, the monthly subscription model is really the dream scenario, especially for content creators, because we basically get to get paid monthly recurring revenue to create the stuff that we want to create. We don't have to sell advertisement. We don't have to create products. We just we we get a monthly check for doing the stuff that we want to do. And it's a, it's a very sustainable model. It's probably my absolute favorite model for independent content creators. And, and we talk a lot about that. Gans and I also talked about how he built such a huge audience, how he found such a unique angle. And then, of course, we go in depth with, with some of the, the, the content that he writes, which is European tech. And we talk about why the European tech scene is so much different than, let's say, China or Silicon Valley, or even some of the stuff that's going on in South America right now. Gans is such an impressive dude. He just, he, he shows up every single week. Every single week he publishes his newsletter. It's always high value. It's always well-researched and he puts a lot of work into it. It's one of my favorite interviews to date and I felt like I learned so much from him. So I know you're going to appreciate this interview. I know you're going to love Gans. He's got a great personality. He's just a really authentic guy. He's always himself. So please, Help me welcome Gans Sanchez. All right, brother. Well, we are recording Gans. Thank you so much for joining me on my show. It's great to finally have a, a, a virtual face-to-face conversation with you. Uh, it's great to, to be here, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. And we've been meeting to do this for a while, so happy to sure. do it right now. Great. Well, let's, let's jump right in. Um, you are involved in a lot of different projects. You've been involved with the tech and the marketing scene for some time, but the reason why I wanted to talk to you and um, in my opinion, the most exciting work that you do is your personal project is Seed Table. Uh, you describe it as an authentic view of European tech, but I would like for you to just tell everybody what Seed Table is so that we can go into a little bit more de- detail. Yeah, so Seed Table is, as, as you said, a newsletter on European technology. 
it goes out every Friday uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, Central European time to about 12,000 European founders, investors, and operators. I cover different fundraising announcements, things going on in European tech, uh, and how they affect society. I do industry overviews, company overviews, just generally, if you want to stay updated with European technology, that's where you should go, uh, or that's my goal at least. The spin here for me is that by being like not tied to any specific media property, I can say essentially whatever I want, which is part of what I think is my edge. And here's where the authentic uh, thing comes in. Um, and hopefully people like it or that's what they tell me so far. Yeah, well, uh, I was going to save this part for a little bit later in the conversation, but since you touched on it, I'm just going to dive right in. For a lot of people that look to the internet to create their own brands and their own companies, in my view, you're really creating the thing that everybody wants. You know, you get to say what you want to say and you build it on a, on a paid subscription model so you can kind of monetize on your own rules. You don't have to appease anybody with advertisement. You don't necessarily have to uh, put, how do I say, like upfront costs into it by creating some kind of course or, or, or some kind of product. It's just, it monetizes as your subscription and your fan base grows. So so like one, I'm jealous because that really ultimately is uh, the end goal for me and Tim Stodds and my personal brand to build some kind of subscription base. But with that being said, it's very hard because you start from zero and you don't have any funding and you just have to constantly put out content and, and stick with it even when it feels like you're not getting anywhere. So talk to me a little bit about that journey with, with what it took to finally get to that leverage point where you're starting to build a real audience. Well, so to first, let's let's preface this by saying that it's it's a relentless fucking grind. So it's <laughs> yeah. it's slow. It, it would have been a lot more profitable to say build a course on how to do your own newsletter. So mm. it, it does require some upfront work, but if you think about it in a dollar by dollar comparison, it's a lot more profitable. That said, um, I decided to go with a subscription model for a couple of, of different reasons. So first, the MRR, like the monthly recurring revenue side of things, for me, it's, it's very uh, attractive. You sort of acquire a customer once, um, and if you keep doing what you're doing and people like what you're saying, then they'll stay, right? If you provide enough value, then they'll stay. Second, it's for me going paid and going paid for, for my writing. It's a way of aligning the incentives. So if I get paid for a sponsor I make, uh, like I get for, for the newsletter, then I'm incentivized to spend time negotiating with sponsors, which is something that I don't really want to do. And it's something that the news, like my newsletter readers won't really appreciate. So by charging for my writing, um, I'm essentially aligning the incentives between me and my audience. So mm. if I want more subscribers, I should write better mm. stuff. Um, so simple equation, of course, a lot harder to execute, but in paper, like in theory, we should be good. Uh, the other thing about going paid is that it becomes a forcing function. It's a forcing function for me to get better because my incentives are aligned. So I read more, I write more, I practice more. So that for me, like the progress I've seen over the past uh, 
six to eight weeks. I think I moved to paid eight, eight weeks ago. The progress I've seen uh, on my own stuff, at least internally, has been fantastic compared to the rate of progress that I had, let's say, late last year. Um, and finally, it was a bit of a test. So what I like to say is that if my writing isn't worth a few bucks a month, then why even write? So it's a bit of a test for me. So those, I think those are the reasons. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time building an audience before even thinking about going paid and I'm being 100% transparent here. I'm always, I'm, I've been thinking whether I did too early because one of the things about going paid is you put some of your stuff and sometimes your best stuff behind a paywall. What that does is you break this uh, like content promotion flywheel. Uh, so you publish something, people share it, people see when someone shared it, they visit your stuff and so on and so forth. So the, the more content you put out, the more people share it and like you create a loop essentially. But when you put your best stuff behind a paywall, what you're doing is you are shooting that loop like straight up. Um, and that's a bit of a problem because it might slow down your audience growth, but to me, I think I've been able to balance it pretty okay. I don't know, something I've been thinking about quite a bit, but I've been, I, I, I've been writing for the past two years at this point and building an audience. So if you have a couple hundred subscribers, you probably shouldn't go paid. You probably should spend time building and getting to know your audience. So much about what you just described is the constant battle that I have in my mind as well. Um, I think one of the reasons why we relate to each other, even though you know our relationship has really been mostly through Twitter, and I think this is the second podcast that we've done together. But I think like one most of the relationships, reasons, yeah, I know they like they're the most authentic relationships I have right now. Um, but one of the reasons why I think we relate is because uh, because writing is really really difficult, and there's real. Like there's real trials and tribulations to be a good writer and the time that you have to put in and the practice you have to put in. And, and in my view, like the vulnerability that you need to be comfortable with because you're putting yourself out there, you know, for the whole world to see. So um, for me, there's just that constant battle where I have a pretty substantial audience um, enough that I know if I put some kind of course together or if I approach the sponsor, like I could probably do it. But, you know, the dream is to have that monthly recurring revenue where you basically get to make money for saying the things that you're saying anyway. And it's just such a real, um, it's a real tricky timing because like you talked about, like once you put that behind a paywall, you cut off your biggest promotion tool, which was that flywheel effect. So, so yeah, like I commend you for, for making the decision to do that because I'm not at the point yet. I think tactically, um, one of the ways which I think it makes a lot of sense, which it seems that you're doing as well, um, is having a podcast that always remains a free piece of content, no matter what. And then if you accompany the podcast with kind of like a weekly synopsis as to what the bigger story of the week is, which is behind the paywall, I think from a tactical standpoint, um, that's, that's a good strategy. That's kind of what I'm going for. My newsletter subscribers are decent, but my, my podcast subscribers, I like to grow a little bit more. Um, and you know, you got your mic in front of you. I know that you're starting your podcast. Is is that the strategy that you're taking? Yes. So, part partly is that, of course. Yeah. Um, the the podcast acts as the sort of the top of the funnel 
growth for the rest of the newsletter. Yeah, yeah. That said, I don't think as the podcast as a magic bullet. Um, mm. I'm thinking about two ways, two, two things right now, and I'm going in two different ways here. So the first one is how can I make the paid offering more valuable? So that's anything from reports, deeper analysis, more content more often, or even a community, for instance. So I'm exploring those things. And the good thing about having an audience is that you can explore it with your audience. So that's great. I sent a survey, I'm emailing them, I'm jumping on calls. So that's been super helpful. Second part is I'm thinking about how can I put out, put out more great content out there um, without, I don't want to say insulting, but, but making sure that I respect the people who are paying money, right? Because those are my core subscribers. Those are my people in a sense. So the podcast is, is part of that, right? It's, it's only one piece of the puzzle, not a magic uh, bullet. Uh, and the other thing about podcasts is that if you have a large enough audience, uh, what you can do is you can leverage that audience to get interesting guests. So first, you actually get to have great conversations with very, very interesting people. Uh, and those conversations can open up your mind to things that you probably never considered before. So I had this recording today uh, with someone who runs the fund um, in Europe and who also spends a lot of time reading and writing. And the things that we talked about, like we covered everything. We covered technology in Europe. And we covered governments, for instance, like we cover Singapore. And it's super interesting to me. The other thing is, and what I was going to say, I think I lost my track there. But yeah, the other thing about um, leveraging your audience to get interesting guests is that usually, by definition, interesting people have audiences as well. So what you get to yeah. do is you get to expose yourself to their audiences and you grow your own audience as a result. Mm -hmm. So it collaborates with that flywheel, particularly now when most of my good stuff is behind a paywall because I made that decision and I got to own it and I got to respect the people who became paid subscribers. So, uh, Yeah, we're totally in line with that. Um, one more question about the actual growth model because I do want to talk about the substance of Seed Table. Um, I think... I think the subject matter is really interesting. I think it was really smart. It's it's a it's a open platform that also has a ton of people that are interested in it. You know, I think like the American tech space has a ton of people involved in it and the stock market space, like we can name all those newsletters off the top of my head. And I think it was a like such a good move for you to um take this subject matter that still has room in it, but also has a ton of audience. Um, so, so I want to talk about the substance matter of Seed Table. But before that, I've always been curious as to the decision that you made to stay on a self-hosted platform. I've had Hamish McKenzie on my podcast before, the founder of Substack. I think I remember you tweeting a few times that you were going to move to Substack. Uh, I am glad, as much as, I, as I'm a fan of Substack, I think that like visually the user experience um, from the interface probably could use some work. And I think your website reads really well um, and it's, it's very easy to navigate. So like 
why it takes more work to build something custom that you're doing. So why did you keep it custom? Why are you building it yourself as opposed to using something like Substack or like a Revu or, or, or a platform like that? Yeah. So, well, first I'm a big, big fan of Substack, um, yeah, what too. they're doing, it's really even awesome. though they're like, now I, I'm getting competitors pop up all the time. Thanks <laughs> to Substack, but I'm a big fan of what they're doing. They are sort of democratizing this, this model and making it, super super easy think of like medium for for newsletters so what i had to do to set up new like seed table a couple of years ago was build a landing page um set up mailchimp connect both things like get going uh Substack makes it super super easy for you um but ultimately i decided to stay with seed table for three different reasons the first one is i like to build stuff and i like to build my own stuff second one is I prefer my own designs and I prefer my own flexibility. So Substack is super rigid and what their roadmap might be probably won't align to my audience. So if you're starting out, like those constraints are a necessary part of the ease of use of the democratization. But as you advance, then that those constraints might cause problems. Yeah. And the third one is... I'm not sure I trust anyone with my audience at this point. Yeah. Like, I want to, like, many, like, I'm sure, or it looks like Substack is not pulling a medium because um, you can export everyone, like, just like you can do with ConvertKit or MailChimp. But what, what Medium did is they encouraged everyone to build this, like, their audiences and their out media outlets and their publications on this platform. Uh, touting the network effects and the ease of use and they they pulled rag from under them uh, like for the ringer it really worked out but for many it didn't so i i plat, public, uh, yeah platforms like substack particularly when they are funded like their incentives are not usually aligned or not always aligned with with their users or writers it's a tough decision and uh, that's, this is a, a subject matter again that I can really go down the rabbit hole with because I feel really passionate about it. Like what they're doing, especially because Hamish and the Substack guys, they're journalists, you know, and so they're trying to bring like journalistic integrity back and creating some kind of monetization method for writers so that they're not, like we talked about before, so they're not at the at, um, they're not being run by their advertisers basically so that their incentives can, can be true and be aligned. And, and I appreciate that, but, uh, I'm always just so weary of that. I mean, for instance, when I was building up sober nation years and years ago, uh, we had a Facebook page and I had 40,000 followers. And I remember staying up all night and I would write these blog posts and I'd post it on Facebook and I would just watch the live analytics of the people rushing to the website and reading my content. And then the same old bait and switch that now we've seen a million times. Like you have to remember that you don't actually own that audience. Facebook owns that audience. And I think that Substack is, is very, very um, altruistic and like their intentions are pure. And I think that they're on the right track, but man, there's just still this thing in the back of my mind that says like control your audience, no matter what, you know, it doesn't matter what anybody says because who knows five years from now they might sell and there might be a new pool of investors. And then, 
And then like, you, they're not your emails, they're their emails. And so I feel really strongly about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's probably the, the place to start if you are thinking about starting a newsletter because you can test things really quickly mm. uh, and you can leverage some network effects uh, that said, and, and you can definitely build big businesses on top of it. It's mm-hmm. like your newsletter is making thousands and thousands of, of dollars a month. That said, you should keep that on the back of your mind. But again, that's my specific yeah. like personal decision. What they're doing for the media landscape, I applaud that mission. Me um, too. You, you were saying about advertisers and everything. I think the incentives for um, advert, like for, for media publications have been fucked up for a while. Um, so if you think about, and I, I tweeted this, I think last week, but if you think about the story of media uh, and big tech, um, big technology companies, it started a while ago, um, a few decades ago, media properties were local monopolies, essentially. Uh, they were the ones with access to the distribution, they were the ones with access to the printing press, and they were the ones with access to the audience. So if you were a local business, let's say running a sale or whatever, you had to go through the newspaper to advertise it to everyone in that city uh, or everyone in that country. Uh, this sort of local constrained monopoly what it did is it skyrocketed the prices of advertising and everything. But then um, the internet came. Uh, and at first, media thought, oh, cool. We can sell more advertising. We don't need to print more papers. And we can reach everyone. That didn't work out that great. Why? Um, I think at some point in 2012, 2013, after years of media sort of praising big technology um, and saying like, for instance, I think the climax of this was media praying uh, tech and Facebook for getting Obama into office. So after a few years after that climax, um, I think the relationship changed. Media realized that they were competing with big tech for advertising dollars and influence and eyeballs and that big tech was kicking their asses. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's when they realize at that same point that if they criticize big tech um, and said something probably not great about them, what you get is clicks. So you get clicks, you get page views, so you can get to sell advertising against those clicks and those page views. And what it does is going back to this concept of flywheel, it generates a flywheel that every time you attack your competitor, you strengthen your business. So. You attack big tech, you generate clicks, you sell advertising, you make money, you attack big tech, and so on and so forth. Um, thing is, big tech is stronger than that. Um, and right now, we're seeing, particularly now with COVID, we're seeing how publications are dying because their advertising, um, bad, not budget, their advertising dollars are drying up. Yeah. So what Substack is doing, which is, putting power on the hands of journalists and building sort of this marketplace of ideas uh, when it comes to newsletters, I think it's really, really cool. I think it is too. It's, it's the business model about content creation that I'm most excited about. Not just yeah. the, 
not just the Patreon, if you like my work, subscribe to me, but offering something that is worthy of paying money for. Um, and that's why I'm so it's excited. It's a business. Yeah, it's, it's a, like a real charity. <laughs> exactly. It's a real business. So, uh, so okay, so let's, let's move on to Seed Table. Um, we talked about your angle. You write really in-depth features about the European technology space. Uh, first question I have is, um, what, what is it about European tech that you're most excited about? Like, what, how do you think the European landscape is differentiating itself from the American or, or maybe even the Eastern landscape? Oh, do you have like 90 minutes for this? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's break it up a bit. So, and this is one of the things that it's most discussed in Europe. Can we be like Silicon Valley? Um, probably that's not the right question. Um, Europe has different strengths, different weaknesses. So we, we think about European tech or even Europe as this concept, this whole thing. But in reality, it's dozens of countries. And those countries are divided by languages, by culture, by actual borders, um, by regulations. So everyone's thinking about how can Europe become more like Silicon Valley? And I think that's entirely the wrong question. Uh, what we've seen is, or and I think people were asking that question mostly because Silicon Valley was the only place to look at. Uh, so there was no other playbook for building a tech yeah, hub. Yeah, no other comparison. But then, yeah, but then China came along yeah. and you can say what you want about China, but they got th like they run a very, very tight shape and, and they have to, of course, because when you're uh, a dictatorship or an authoritarian government, then you got to keep people happy uh, and you got to provide them with economic growth and economic stability. Like that's the sort of the lacks in which the regime stands, economic growth and economic stability. So what China showed is that they, you can build technology companies, huge technology companies. You could say like some, some of them even larger than US technology companies with a completely different playbook. So what they do in Shenzhen makes absolutely no sense for an engineer in let's say, I don't know, San Francisco. So what it showed is that there are different ways of building technology hubs. And I'm not sure I have the right answer to as to how to build one in Europe. Um, this is, I have an idea which is not mine. Um, this French investor called, well, the sort of English pronunciation is Nicholas Collin. Um, but he, Nicholas he was what? saying, it's Nicholas Collin. Um, so, and well, Nicholas, C-O-L-I-N, and you can edit this. Um, what he says is what he thinks is the right way to build a tech ecosystem for Europe is to battle with this dichotomy of being really strong at the local level. So let's say Barcelona, but also being really st strong at the continental level, because at the end of the day, if you want to grow really, really big, uh, and you actually want to do that to provide well, first to compete with the US or with Asia, but also to provide the returns that VCs are looking for, then you gotta get out of your own country, of your own city, and look for talent, look for capital, look for users, look for customers beyond your, like a 10 kilometer radius of your office. So 
this thing about getting started at local level, scaling at a continental level, and not scaling into the US, which is most companies sort of first choice. Because if you think about it, the incentives are aligned for that. Um, most companies have the choice of, hey, like I started in Spain, should I go to Germany or should I go to the US? And if you think about it, the US has, I don't know, 350 million internet users, and they also speak a different language than Spain. So Germany, it's, it's a much smaller market, and they also speak a different language than Spain. So the amount of work is similar, but the reward or the upside is much, much larger when you think about expanding to the US. But now, as this, I don't know how, we'll, how the world will get out of this COVID thing geopolitically. There are people much smarter than me thinking about it, but I could argue it's a good time to start thinking about Europe. I think everything that you said right there is, is so interesting to talk about, especially the language. Um, I spent a lot of time in, in Germany. Well, not a lot of time. I studied German a lot and I spent um, a couple months there. And uh, it's, it's hard for Americans to understand that you got a country that's really small in comparison to the States, right? And they only really speak that language there. But there's an internal um, decision that they make to say like, no, we're going to keep speaking our language and we're going to keep our culture in tech, in, intact, excuse me. And, uh, and it's, it's like a difficult shell to break out of because how, I mean, I, I think a, a really small example is in your case, you know, like you write about European tech, but you still write in English. And like, what other decisions do you have? Are you going to write? In Spanish, you're going to write in German, or you're going to write in all that. Like even Germany has like three or four dialects. Where I spent my time in southern Germany, and then I'd go up north, and I could hardly understand what they're saying. And even the stuff that they write is different. So uh, I think that language barrier is something that's really, really fascinating, and something that we have to think of so that these European countries can somehow break out of their shell. And with that, the next thing that I'm, I'm curious, since you have a much better insight, is out of the countries, um, you know, I would think, right, Britain, Scotland's got some cool stuff going on. Norway and Scandinavia has some cool crypto stuff going on. Um, you know, Germany with their just manufacturing and discipline machine that they've always been known for. Barcelona. Um, so out of all of the little micro hubs that together make up the entirety of like the European continent, which one of these countries do you think is going to take the lead? Like, which one do you think is really going to say like, we are the center of European tech? Uh, well, so right now the center of European tech is clearly London, right? Um, it's up there when it comes to talent. It's up there when it comes to number of companies started with investor funds, with capital raised every year. So it's, it's, it's up there and it's growing. So it's not like it's an incumbent that it's like has been slowing down for a while. Uh, it's, it's growing. So the easy answer is, oh, I'm bullish uh, on London. The other thing is, I think there's another city or another country that's coming for London's lunch and that is Paris. Um, hmm. The Parisian tech ecosystem is very, very strong right now. The growth rate for the past few years has been much larger than London's. Um, the 
French government, despite all the fun that people make of French government, is doing a fantastic job um, with technology. So they are solving some of the key problems for the European tech ecosystem at, at a French level. So one is one, one big problem in, in, in France and the rest of Europe is growth uh, stage capital. So not capital to start your company, but capital to let's say 50, 100, 200, 300 million euros. Yeah. So what they did is they committed about 5 billions from their own money, from like, yeah, from government money essentially for growth stage companies. So that's one example. The other example is they have, or they launched a tech visa that's super, super inclusive. So you need uh, a college diploma, um, you need a minimum salary, you can bring your spouse. Uh, It's easy and cheap to apply and to get it. So what that does is it solves one of the biggest problems for Europe, which is bringing talent from abroad. And there are not a million things that they're doing, um, but the Parisian's sort of tech ecosystem is to me very, very interesting. So I, I'm not sure if they're gonna pass London. Um, we still don't know the full extent of Brexit and if that's going to leave a vacuum somewhere. Uh, Brexit was visualized and we got COVID and so we don't really know at this point. Yeah. But what I can say is I'm very long for us. Yeah, well, and in that, you brought me to the, uh, the next subject matter, which I wanted to talk about, and that is talent. Um, we got about 15 minutes or, or 10, 10, 15 minutes left. And in your newsletter, you talk about talent a lot and you talk about this infatuation that you've had with it because we don't, when growing a business, a lot of times VCs um, who, and just marketers, uh, we, we forget about the human element involved. We forget about like that X factor, which is smart people, you know, but you could argue that even more important than the investment capital or like the positioning is how smart are the people that are working on your company. And uh, you've written some really fascinating stuff about talent and about how uh, bringing the, I don't know what you would call the industry of talent, you know, but like the, the flow of smart people to some of these European tech hubs. Um, I know this is kind of an open-ended question, but I almost wanted to give you just a, a platform to talk about that. So I call it the talent market. Um, that's, but that's just me, right? So... Uh, you're saying like very interesting things and it, it's see we've been discussing about the u.s about france about government about companies but we've never mentioned people yeah. and at the end of the day what's behind government countries companies it's people right so talent is as the at the core of everything a few weeks ago um probably six weeks ago I wrote this piece called The Golden Age of Time is Over that looked at the ramifications of COVID-19 in what I call the talent market. And what the piece outlined was that with COVID um, causing layoffs and companies shutting down, we would see this sudden influx of talent, great talent, talent that probably wouldn't be looking for a job otherwise, a sudden influx of this this talent to the market. And what this does is it would shift the balance 
of power from talent to companies. So historically, or at least for the past couple of decades, talent had the power. So there, was a, there were a lot more companies looking for great talent than great talent looking for new jobs. So if you were a, what I call a great talent, you had your choices, right? You had your choices of companies, of cities, or, or like even salaries, right? Um, but that's why companies spent all this money on recruitment. So if you think about the recruitment model, recruiters get between 15 and 20% of a hire's first year salary mm. just for referring them to the company. So if you wow. think about that insanity, you can get thousands and thousands of dollars or euros or whatever you want uh, just because you pointed someone to the direction of a company. So it's a great business for them, not such a great business for companies. But that, that industry is built on top of this inefficiency or imbalance of power. Problem is, when you get thousands of great workers looking for jobs, then the power is now with the companies, right? So now you have your pick. Um, now everyone's looking for a job. And most companies are either laying off people, uh, freezing their hiring operations, or shutting down. So the ones that remain really have the power. That was my point. And up until last night, I think, I thought it was quite true. But I forgot about something. And that something is remote work. Yeah. So last week, the first dominoes started falling. And that is Facebook, Twitter, Square, uh, Coinbase, and a couple of other big tech companies announced they would, and Shopify announced they would shift their operations and allow people, or at least most workers, to work remotely from their homes, wherever home is. And this is a problem for companies, for smaller companies. Why? Because if you're a company in Barcelona, then now you have to compete with Facebook mm -hmm. for talent. So regardless of whether uh, you are remote or not, regardless of whether you just hire locally or internationally, that, like, that's irrelevant because Facebook can actually hire someone living right next to you. So you're competing with these big technology companies for talent and they have more money and probably more interesting problems to solve than you. So how, like, I started thinking how this plays out in the future. And if you like go full game theory in this and, and do enough iterations, where you get is that the right move, if you're a company CEO right now, is probably to go remote to counter the fact that big tech companies are going remote. So you're hiring, I'm, I'm trying to articulate this as I go, because I, I haven't, like still working it out. I'm still working it out as I go, yeah. but if you think about a city as a talent market, right? It's super small. It's like this small, like olive-sized market. Uh, and then you got a million of these markets everywhere, each city, each country, and so on and so forth. And they remain mostly static and sometimes they interact with each other because some people move from city A to city B or from country A to country B. When Facebook says, okay, I'm going remote, they, they essentially, it's like an octopus, right? They can go everywhere right now. So the best way to react to that is not to compete with Facebook in your small olive-sized market, it's to go remote as well and say, okay, then the playing field is the entire world. Um, 
So I think I underestimated that effect when I first wrote uh, The Golden Age for Talent is Sober. And I think we'll see a lot more companies going remote over the next um, few years, not because going remote is cool, which for me it is, but because going remote is the only sensible response to big tech companies going remote and mm-hmm. competing for your talent in your backyard. I wonder about that as well. I, I wonder, and only time will tell, this is just stuff that I'm trying to work out because, I mean, for Stasi, for my marketing agency, for instance, um, without giving you too big of a, a story, like Stasi is kind of the, the, the linchpin of the marketing infrastructure that we have with all of our websites, right? We have this internal company that essentially provides the labor that we need to grow all of our other assets. And I've always loved having the office. I'm still paying rent on the office. No one's been there for three months. And there's just this weird feeling in the back of my mind where already we have employees in the Philippines. We have employees in Poland. Um, and it's, it's funny too, when you talk about talent, I never thought of it this way until you brought it to my attention, but different cultures really thrive on different skills. You know, like Poland has some of the best web developers in the entire world. They're, I don't know if it's just the stubbornness or the work ethic that they have over there, but they stick with it until they get it. Um, you know, I, I think in my opinion, we've still found the best writers in the States. Um, especially I think most of the internet is in English. I don't know how much it's probably like a vague statement, but in our experience, it still made sense to pay more for writers in the States. But up until three years ago, um, I would have probably had those writers in house, you know, now they're everywhere. I mean, all over the country. So it's just so, so interesting as to how much of this was a natural development of um, the fact that every, the communication is so instantaneous and how much of COVID is just acting as an accelerant to what may have already been the case. Uh, who knows, you know, but it's, it's definitely really interesting to think about. And I, I never put a whole lot of thought into it until I started reading your work, which is why it's something that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, the, the only thing to, to be wary of is I always speak about talent in this very abstract terms, mm. but the reality is what you were mentioning, right? An office that you're paying rent, uh, but no one's going to, people in the Philippines, people in Poland, people in in the US. So it's not really as black and white uh, as I paint it to be. Um, sure. But that's something to definitely keep in mind. It's not that like Facebook will go for every single worker everywhere, right? Yeah, um, because there is still something to walking into the next room and saying like, can you look at this for me? You know, like we really, really do miss that. And I just, I wonder, I wonder where it's all going to fall. You know, like what, where, where this is going to end up. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I can't claim to know. Like, we all like to play predictions. Yeah, but at expert. some point, we, yeah, at some point, we're going to start, we, we start predicting and start mm-hmm. building. Well, uh, Gans, I really, really appreciate your time. I'm so glad that we're finally able to get on to this um, and have this conversation. I've, I, I praise you all the time on Twitter. I'm such a fan of your work. I commend the fact that you continue to write in English, even though who knows, it's like your third or fourth language. Um, it's, it's really, really cool. And 
And on top of that, I am just a fan, like I talked about before, of the, the model that you're doing. Because although it, you have to really have thick skin for it because you have to keep writing and writing and writing, believing that one day this is going to take off to the point where you know, like, hey, if I created some product, I could probably make a couple bucks now, but you're sticking it out for like the real big win in the future. And I'm just a fan of people who uh, are willing to put that, that time in the beginning for something that's like really, really worthwhile. So congratulations to all your success, man. I'll definitely be following along. Thanks, man. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. We should do it more often. Um, sure. and we'll see. We'll see who's right um, on like me or reality. Yeah. All right. Um, Ctable.com. You're pretty active on Twitter. I'll make sure I link all that in the show notes. Um, it's pretty simple, right? Anything else you got to say? Nope. All set. Follow me on Twitter if you want some not so smart takes on European <laughs> tech. And other than that, it's been great, man. Talk soon. All right, brother. See you later. Hey guys, it's me. It's Tim. One last time before we wrap up, just wanted to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave me an honest rating. Please follow me on Spotify. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. If you want to find out more, go to timstods.com. Feel free to fill out the contact form to reach out to me personally. I always respond. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.